2: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I would be one of my friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC. Or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Days like this, I know, I know, they are discouraging. Dow plunging 525 points. S&P plummeting 2.37%. NASDAQ nose diving 3.02%. The house of pain. But I got to tell you, I think this decline, this decline's healthy. This market needed a beatdown if only as a learning experience for some people who thought it was too easy. When the market's roaring, a lot of investors seem to forget the most fundamental rule in the book. Buy low, sell high. Instead, they want to buy high and sell higher. The problem with that strategy is that when stocks go down, they go down hard. You tend to lose money a lot faster than you make it. Rather than being panicked by this sell-off, you actually, in a very perverse way, should be really cheering for it. We needed this. Why? Because we needed to break the nasty pattern of 1999 to 2000 that so many people referred to. During that fabled run, the leaders never really took a breather like this one. They just kept charging higher and higher until the market peaked when they collapsed. And millions of investors were led to the slaughterhouse, and I've got to tell you, they never came back. (laughs) When the averages started making new highs this year, I began to worry myself that we might be doomed to repeat the mistakes of the dot-com era. Oh, there were some major similarities. The market's led by a handful of tech companies pushing a digital revolution, a lot like the dot-com revolution 20 years ago. Plus, we now being, uh, we're being flooded, you know that, with IPOs to put pressure on existing stocks, just like back then you have to sell existing to buy the new stuff. Of course, these days, our tech leaders are real companies with excellent earnings, not just sales that we're about to roll over. But just like 1999, a lot of the recent move was what we call multiple expansion. People paying more money for the same set of earnings or sales. At a certain point, though, multiple expansion becomes the greater fool theory, meaning people are buying these stocks after a big run in the hope that some other doofus will pay even more than they did in the future. It gets worse. Lately, we've attracted an enormous cohort of new investors, which, by the way, I think is fabulous. But because there hasn't been a huge selling squall in ages, not since March, a lot of these newbies bought high and and they never sold anything. Zoom Video is up 635% for the year. Tesla's up 355%. These are gigantic moves, it, it, once in a lifetime. And you have to expect some part of them is going to be repealed. They, they're not natural. When Zoom reported Great Quarter earlier this month, its stock initially plunged 100 points before rebounding to new highs. And even in the midst of a major tech sell-off, the darn thing made it another new high today. That's unrealistic. Some profit-taking might be in order. Too reminiscent of the dot-com period when the market became a prisoner of its own momentum. However, there are also some major differences, and this is what I like. First, we may have a lot of IPOs, but unlike 1999, most of them are actually pretty high-quality companies with astounding revenue growth, like a snowflake with a seasoned hand at the top of it, right? Uh, Frank Slootman from ServiceNow, or even genuine earnings, like GoodRx, the prescription drug price cutter that came public today. More on that later. I think most of the IPOs from the class of 2020 have genuine staying power. It's just that their stocks are too expensive. Nothing like 20 years ago, only a handful of the 330 dot-coms that came public in that year even made it to 2002. I know, I ran one, and I watched them collapse left and right because they had no real business. At least mine got out alive. Second, the collapse of the dot-com bubble was caused not by the IPOs, but by IPO aftershocks. There's a six-month lockup on insider selling after one of these deals. And when those lockups expire, executives back then sold left and right because they knew their companies didn't deserve such sky-high valuations. Many knew their companies were jokes with no earnings and not even any sales. Still, the parallels, too close to comfort, which is why I'm actually relieved by this sell-off. Don't get mad at me. The market needed to cool off. If you took my advice and had some cash on the sidelines, you can now do some buying at lower levels. We didn't see anything for uh, action alerts by Chapel Trust today. We We didn't. We want it lower. But here's what we're watching right now. And there are two buckets of stocks that I find very intriguing. First, got the falling stars. As of today, Apple's now down 22% from its highs, something the red-hot stocks of 1999 never did, at least not in the whole edifice collapse. That seems like a level where some real buyers are going to start coming in. It's now at 107. On Monday, it went as low as 103 before rebounding. Let's say that that, that's the floor down 25%, give or take a couple of percent. Hey, listen, if it goes to 100, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go on Twitter and I want you to assassinate me, okay? There, I gave you a little. So anything like, hey, by the way, anything uh, that's not as bad as that, I'll regard that as being uh, terrific. All right, let's play this one out. Amazon. This one peaked at 3,550. Okay, so where would a 25% decline take you? How about 2,660? Down 304 points from here. Given that Amazon's still up 62% for the year while Apple's only up 46%, that seems like a reasonable level to start buying. Same back of the envelope analysis tells me that Microsoft, currently at 200, becomes attracted around 180, 175. But considering the stock's only up 27% for the year, it might bottom sooner. We're trying to figure it out for the trust ourselves what to tell people. Now, Alphabet's the toughest because it's currently facing an antitrust inquiry from the Justice Department. And the stock's terrible. It's only up 5% for the year, but it's a good company. Sure, it's trading at 31.8 times this year's earnings, not sales, but it's got a ton of cash. You can actually back that out. Terrific growth. If it keeps falling, I think you just buy it. See what I'm saying? If you ran the same analysis in 1999, there was no price where anything could be bought because the whole war was merely surfing momentum. Take that away and we crashed hard, down 25%, down 30 down 40 There wasn't any reason, no grounding. How about the second bucket? Okay, well, these are ones for people who want to sleep at night. There's some genuine carnage away from tech that no one's been talking about because it's been done rolling and dripping. PepsiCo. That's a good example. It's an excellent company. It's got great growth for a packaged food play and its tremendous balance sheet. Yet it's pulled back 11% from its highs to the point where the stock now yields more than 3%. Hey, guys, it's a snacking company. Don't we snack more at home? Isn't that what people say? General Mills just reported a great quarter and raised its dividend to 3.5% level. It's come down from 66 to 57. People didn't like the quarter. Are you kidding me? Quarter was fine. They raised a dividend. They weren't supposed to do that for another couple quarters. We recently had James Quincy, the CEO of Coca-Cola, on the show, and he told us a very compelling story. The stock yields 3.4%. How about J&J? Another quality defensive name. Also keeps getting blasted, although it bounced a bit today, on news that it's starting a gigantic vaccine trial against COVID. These stocks represent real value. I think you can buy some of them tomorrow and then buy more if they go lower. Those you do in stage down. Plus, they have the added advantage of not having any hot money in them whatsoever. So your fellow shareholders aren't going to panic and dump the stocks as they go lower. Now, one more key difference versus 1999 is that we've had weeks uh, where some sectors roll over aggressively, like the recent we is PepsiCo, General Mills. And unlike back then, though, bonds are giving you next to no yield. And the Fed chairman just told us that we can expect that to continue, possibly for years. If you want income, Well, here you go, okay? These are like bonds that also have the ability to grow. I like to think of it as two great tastes that taste great together. Not bad. Look, I'm not trying to lull you into a false sense of security here. I'd be wrong. The market's getting pulverized. I think there could be more downside here. We're headed for choppy times as many of the permanently bullish new investors get washed out as they discover that stocks don't always go up. On last night's off the charts, the legendary Larry Williams told us to expect turbulence until mid to late October. He's been emphatic that the end of September, where we are now, will be no picking for the bulls. I recommend lagging into the stocks I just mentioned in weakness because they work even if COVID cases keep spiking and the economy slows down, both of which I think is going to happen. The bottom line, I expect this market to stay volatile with a downside bias until more of those overly bullish new investors throw in any towel that they may be holding. We can't know when they'll be done their selling. That's impossible. But we do know when it makes sense to start buying into weakness. The high flyers work down 25% from the top, and the defenses work when they yield north of three. But when it comes to anything else, you have to be patient, because better prices could lurk into the Merck. Gregory in Florida. Gregory. Jim, big booyah to you. Well, thank you, Gregory. What's going on?
3: Uh, my question is about an airline, Jim. It's been a beleaguered cohort, and I know you preach barbell and sticking with the best of breed. Right. This airline, this airline, recently announced they're keeping middle seats open until the end of November. They just reported a modest improvement in bookings, but their CEO really did not sound all that enthusiastic with you on at this AM. So tell me, Jim, do I LUV me some Southwest enough to add more
2: hold? or sell shares. Okay, so that's Gary Kelly. I interviewed him this morning on Squawk in the Street. I happen to be a huge, I've known Gary forever. And uh, I, I detected that Gary I felt was a little too negative today. But you know what? I don't run the airline. Gary does. And he made me feel like, please don't be so bullish here, Jim, because the airlines are in trouble. If you have to own an airline, you do that, but I would not buy that stock north of $32. Let's go to Brian in Colorado, please. Brian. Professor Kramer. With the election, the Affordable Care Act, and the Supreme Court ruling trending, is United Healthcare 10% down from all-time highs a buying opportunity for long-term investors? And can the diversification and growth of the Optum division continue to surprise to the upside post-election? Well, my friend, Curry Firestone, this morning on. Uh, on halftime with Scott Wabner said this is the right level. I've been watching. It's down from 324 down to 292. I actually prefer it to go a little bit lower, only because it's such a mean political season. But UNH is a real good company. Uh, if I could get it, say 280, 292 right now. That's a good place to start. Let's go to Charles in Texas. Charles.
3: Hi, Jim. My question is about Steelcase. I'm a first-time caller and an Action Plus club member.
2: Yeah, you know, I I was actually, after Herman Miller, all right, which you know I like because of the Aeron chair, I thought there was a chance that Steelcase could report a better expected quarter. I didn't tell you that, though. Why? Because they have had, they are, Jimmy Chill says that they're not doing that great a job. That's what people say, right? Everyone else says stuff like that. It comes hard for me to say that, because I want to say how I really feel, but Jimmy Chill says, eh, you know, I'm not doing that well. I know today's discouraging, but there will be opportunities to buy into the weakness, but it, it, it pays to be patient. What's the hurry? Well, maybe everybody tonight, it's a company leading the fight against high prescription drug costs, and it just came public. But is Good or worth considering after its first incredible day of trading? I'm focusing on the former CBC disruptor. And Nike shares hit an all-time high today, taking, getting a boost from record online sales. I'm breaking down the quarter and telling you how the company just did it. And Google just upped the ante in the escalating cloud competition. Now made a major partnership with Anaplan. I'm going to go to Anaplan, speak to the CEO, find out what that's all about, so stay with Kramer.
4: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer, hashtag madtweets.
2: After taking a couple of glorious days off, the IPO deluge is back with not one but two deals that sort right out of the gate today. Bentley Systems and good Rx holdings. Sure enough, the NASDAQ got hammered, too, just like during last week's glut of initial public offerings. They are deeply entangled with each other. Take that from me, please. You don't hear it from others. It really matters. Regular viewers know I get very cautious when we're in the middle of an IPO boom. The surest fire way to kill a bull market is to flood it with new stock. Remember, this is a market, especially stocks in high-quality companies that many investors find enticing, so they have to sell something else to buy them. So on a day like today, I'm torn. On the one hand, I wish we weren't getting so many of these deals that immediately go to a huge premium. But on the other hand, I like some of these stocks a lot. I only wish they pulled pull back to more reasonable uh, levels, which is my job, right, to tell you what's reasonable. I want you to take a company called GoodRx, my favorite of today's, today's big debuts. This is a company we've had on multiple times on this show, and I'm not just an interviewer. I am a satisfied customer. GoodRx got its start as a prescription drug comparison tool. They tell you the cheapest place to buy medication in your area with an instant comparison shopping app. Usually it's Costco, of course. But not always. In recent years, though, GoodRx has evolved into a more comprehensive digital health platform. They've gone beyond drugs. Now they've even got their own telemedicine platform. We know how important that is. Hey, doctor, it's called. Where you can set up a digital uh, doctor's visit so you don't catch COVID while you're sitting in the doctor's waiting room. In short, GoodRx is a great story. It's got fabulous financials. So, of course, yes, the deal was red hot. I just get down about it because on a day like today where the market's horrible... I don't like to see this. It shouldn't have been this strong. The book runners, though, immediately, uh, initially marketed this one at 24 to 28, then actually priced it at 33 last night because there was so much demand. The stock gave you a monster gain right out of the gate. When it opened at 46 bucks, it kept running to $50 at the close. Is this another IPO that immediately got too expensive? Look, you have to remember that GoodRx has excellent financials. It's part of an industry called the digital health space that's growing like a weed. Better still, this is one of the few companies in the entire healthcare sector that's working to drive costs down for consumers. Most of it goes up and, and without being usually inconvenient. Honestly, GoodRx is pretty unique. Nobody else really does this, and I think they've gotten enough mindshare to protect against competition for years. So before we can know if GoodRx is worth buying at the stock price 50, we need to figure out what the right price would be. And that means we have to understand what we're paying for. Whatever your political persuasion, I think most of us can agree that American healthcare system is just kind of a nightmare. 20 to 30 percent of prescriptions are left at the pharmacy counter in this country because people can't afford to pay. And, you know, that's really messed up. By the way, you know, it's bad when both Donald Trump and Joe Biden relentlessly bash our sky high drug prices. It's the one thing they can agree on. I think it's silly to blame Big Pharma, though. If the Democrats and Republicans really want to make your medications cheaper, they could pass price controls in Congress tomorrow. But Republicans hate interfering with the free market, and Democrats are afraid to govern. So if you want relief from sky-high drug prices, the only help you're going to get is from GoodRx and other companies like it. See, the bizarre thing about our system is that a drug might cost $100 at your local CVS, but only $20 at your local Costco. And maybe there's a sale on it at Walgreens that makes it even cheaper. Normally, though, you wouldn't know it unless you got on the phone with all three pharmacies, which is not an experience that I'd recommend to anyone. And that's where GoodRx comes in. Their app aggregates over 150 billion prescription pricing data points to find the best deals for you. GoodRx codes are accepted at pretty much every retail pharmacy in the United States. And whenever you use their code to save money, the company collects a fee from its partners, primarily the pharmacy benefit managers that exist to save your insurance provider money on medicine. If you use GoodRx once, you can typically keep taking advantage of their discounts every time you refill that prescription, which means you can continue saving money, and they continue taking a tiny cut of each transaction. Tens of millions of Americans have chronic conditions that require them to get refills every month, so that's a nice base of recurring revenue. They've also got a paid subscription offering GoodRx Gold, which can save you even more money for $5.99 a month or $9.99 for your whole family. On top of that, the company now has a huge digital audience that drug makers like to advertise their various discount programs to. But the vast bulk of the people uh, 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 about this business is really about saving people money on drugs. And for that, no one else comes anywhere near them, which is why there's so much excitement. That's how you could have an IPO, and 33 goes out of 50-50. No, Not only is GoodRx the unrivaled leader here with roughly 5 million monthly average users, they've also got a trusted brand that's beloved by consumers. I know because I use it myself for a chronic condition. The company estimates that they've saved people Uh, $20 billion, so forth, 20 with a B, and they've only just gotten started. They saved me $50,000 last year. Best of all, GoodRx has incredible numbers. The company had 48% revenue growth in the first half of the year, and that's holding pretty steady. Since 2016, they've had a compound annual growth rate of 57%. Now, maybe that's not as impressive as Snowflake with its triple-digit growth, but GoodRx is something Snowflake won't have for years earnings, yet the company's turning a profit. They made $55 million in the first half, up from 34, $31 million in the same period of 2019. So we're talking 77% earnings growth here, not just sales growth. That's a massive acceleration from last year's 50% clip. I told lots of like it. The only thing better than turbocharged revenue growth is turbocharged earnings growth, which GoodRx has in spades. Meanwhile, GoodRx has been the most downloaded medical app on Apple and Google devices for the last three years running. The only fly in the ointment? Their user count dipped in the second quarter because of the COVID lockdown. Because lots of people stop going to the doctor, which makes it a lot harder to get prescriptions. But I bet those numbers have already turned around here, especially since a lot of people desperately need to save money on medication right now. Okay, so then what's, what's wrong? It's the price. Like all the other recent red hots, this one's expensive. At these levels, the company has a $19 billion market capitalization, which means it's, roughly, it's, it's selling for roughly 30 times sales. Not earnings, sales. And Apple, by the way, is around 30 times earnings. See, so this makes this company a little more expensive than Amwell and a little cheaper than Livongo, two companies with much faster revenue growth. However, GoodRx is profitable, which changes the game. The problem, though, is that the earnings are still small. If we assume the company can keep growing rapidly, you could argue it's trading it's trading 60 times, what could potentially make it to 2022, uh, we, we, but it's still pricey. But you know what? After speaking to co-CEO Doug Hurst this morning on Squawk on the Street, I'm willing to pay up for this one. Two reasons. First, the value proposition is incredible, and I'm betting they can keep delivering spectacular earnings numbers. Second, GoodRex's largest venture capital investor, Silver Lake, actually bought bought $100 million worth of stock at the IPO price today. Usually these guys want to cash out when a company goes public, but this time they upped their position. Bottom line, I think you can actually nibble at GoodRx tomorrow if we have a pullback. I actually would like it to come back to the 30s, ideally, down more than 10 bucks from here. And that's not unrealistic when you see how horrible the market is. It's, look, look, things have gotten very tough in the last three weeks. I say, GoodRx, why not be patient? Stick with Cramer.
5: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery,
2: And yet another very ugly September day. Told you this is not a good month. You know what managed to defy the gravitational pull of the averages? Nike. Yep, Nike was up 8.8%. Made the best performance of the SP and 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average, for that matter. Yep, the sneaker and athletic apparel kingpin saw its stock jumped to a new all-time high in the wake of a spectacular quarter. The most impressive part? Nike delivered an amazing set of numbers in the middle of a horrific pandemic. At a time when so many retailers that carried the merchandise were, what do we say, total disarray? A lot of them were closed. Best of all, we bought Nike for the Chapel Trust just two weeks ago and more yesterday. You can follow our moves by joining the Plus.com club. So these numbers made me look like a genius. It's nice to look like a genius for a couple of minutes. Anyway, seriously, this was the kind of quarter that takes your breath away. Nike delivered 10.5 nine billion in sales. The analysts were only looking for a bit more than nine billion. That's stunning, but not as stunning as the fact that they earn ninety-five cents per share, more than double the forty-seven cent number Wall Street expected. And the commentary in the conference call was somehow even better than the numbers. Just you know, if this stock market had been up two hundred to three hundred, this stock would have been at one thirty-seven, maybe one forty. To really get your head around this quarter, you need to understand the setup. I always tell you that we don't care where a stock's been, right? We only care where it's going to. And Nike's the textbook example. Two weeks ago, the stock was trading at an all-time high. It a fabulous long-term performer. And while it got slammed by the COVID crash this spring, it quickly came roaring back. We decided to buy it for the travel trust anyway, even as the stock had a ton of dollars on Wall Street. Analysts were hedging their bets going into the quarter, given how much the stock had run. They were worried about weakness in the United States and not-so-hot numbers from China. Assuming it may be a pandemic wasn't the best way to, well, it was certainly not the right time to buy new shoes, right? I mean, hey, everything's going bad. Let's buy $250 Jordans. But I've been a huge fan of Nike for ages. When it comes to travel trust, we figured the COVID-19 economy might actually be good for business. See, even before the virus, Nike was all about digital. The company's been trying to transform itself from wholesaler into something with a more direct-to-consumer business model. The margins are much higher when they cut out that middleman by selling you shoes or shirts or shorts over the web. Right now, everybody in retail is trying to get digital simply in order to survive. They're using the Internet, I would say, frankly, to play defense. Nike was already on offense before COVID. On average, when you sell a pair of shoes online, it generates twice the revenue they get from a wholesale transaction with substantially higher gross margins. That's what this move's about. It's about gross margin expansion, better revenues from direct to consumer. Now, roughly a year ago, Nike brought in a tech guy. Yeah, John Donahue. He was formerly of ServiceNow, which is one of our cloud kingpins. He understands the digital transition better than most people, certainly anybody in apparel. And from the moment he took over, he put it into overdrive. The last time Nike reported in June, they went into great detail about this on the conference call with a new initiative uh, called Consumer Direct Acceleration. They're trying to build a great digital marketplace that can give individual shoppers exactly what they want. Last time, management talked about 30% digital penetration by the end of this fiscal year and 50% digital penetration longer term. In other words, Nike's using the web to steal market share from their wholesale distributors. Basically, they're cannibalizing the retailers who sell their merchandise. Nike makes a lot more money if you buy your shoes from them rather than from, say, Foot Locker. They, don't worry, they maintain good relationships with the retailers, but this is too juicy. So even as the stock was making new highs, we pounced on it for the trust right as we were taking profits in the high-flying tech stocks that I told you over and over again had gotten too hot and I want you out of, or at least trimmed. What made us so confident? While some analysts were hedging their bets, we got some very positive channel checks from Wedbush, which talked about decent numbers in North America and real strength in greater China. Then Guggenheim put Nike on their best idealist with a $150 price target. Very smart call. Both analysts really had a beat on things. Most of all though I figured Nike could be a COVID winner, meaning it doesn't need a vaccine to do well, because it benefits so much from digitization. Pretty much all the stocks that have been able to make new highs this year belong to companies that do better in a pandemic. And it turns out Nike's no different didn't hurt that china's a huge market for them we know the chinese economy is in very good shape plus there's the great outdoors theme we've seen incredible numbers from just about every business related to hiking or camping because it's the only way to safely go on vacation in the age of social distancing that's why in last week's game plan i told you to buy some nike before the quarter but even i didn't expect it to be this good while the company's sales were only flat on a constant currency basis they were still wildly better than expected with strength in digital canceling out the weakness in that wholesale business Translated into 10% earnings growth, the monster 48-cent beat off a 47-cent basis. Their best market, China, up 8%, which was actually a little weaker than anticipated. But the rest of the world was much, much better than feared. On top of that, the company gave some insanely bullish verbal guidance for the full year, talking about high single-digit to low double-digit revenue growth. Previously in June, Nike forecast just flat to positive revenue growth. Big improvement. I was looking for 5%. The only fly in the ointment is that they're uh, their supply constrained because they didn't expect such a remarkable level of demand. And if you thought the numbers were amazing, the call was out of this world. CEO John Donahoe, who is so good, he's been on our show so many times, made it crystal clear that Nike's a COVID winner. I want you to hear this. Quote, We can thrive in this environment thanks to our digital advantage and the full breadth of our global portfolio. End quote. He goes on, Quote, there are three structural tailwinds that play to Nike's advantage. The accelerated consumer shift toward digital is here to stay. The definition of sports to include all facets of health, wellness and fitness. And it's the deeply, deeply connected, authentic brands with scale that will win. End quote. As Nike sees it, the pandemic showing us the future of retail. Their digital business was astounding 83 percent. That's an acceleration versus the previous quarter, even as the retail distributors reopen. And they keep investing in digital with a growing ecosystem of apps, more distribution centers, and better infrastructure to keep track of all their inventory. Put it all together, and the story's just gotten too good to ignore, as I said on Scott Wapner's halftime report earlier today. You know what? I mean, I think it's still a buy. I mean, look, it was trading just where I get my levels. It was trading about 134 135 when things were still looking tepid for the market before it really fell apart. Uh, And you know what? You probably want to buy some if it sells off into tomorrow's opening. Here's the bottom line. I know Nike just made a new all-time high. But if you let that stop you from buying this incredible stock, which changed dramatically today for these numbers, you'll miss some fabulous moves. And the next time you see a retailer distributes Nike's merchandise doing badly, remember, they're not just wholesale customers. They're also competitors. And they might be in rough shape because Nike's digital business is eating their lunch. Let's go to Jeff in Massachusetts. Jeff. Jim, how are you, sir? I am good. How about you, Jeff?
3: Awesome. Listen, I'm calling about Capri Holdings. They beat expectations this past quarter. The thing's not moving. It's kind of stagnant around 20 bucks. What are you thinking? Buying well, I've read days?
0: two
2: positive analyst notes in the last two weeks about how it's time. Uh, I am not a believer that it's time. Uh, I think it'll be time when the company comes on and tells me it's time, and they sure haven't done that. Hey, how about Ben in Georgia, please? Ben.
3: Hey, Tim. Thanks so much for taking my call. Oh, I'm sure, a business Ben. Business long-term investor in Starbucks.
2: What is your view on the stock, considering the global situation at the present time? All right. Starbucks is doing some remarkable things in offer and in, in creating new stores that will make it so their lines are shorter in an era of covid. I also like what they're doing very much in China. I think Kevin Johnson's is doing a terrific job. It is what I call an up stock. It's been going up since it broke 60. Not that long ago. And I think it's classic buyable on dip stock. That's Starbucks. And I like it very much. OK, Nike, just do it. Much more mad money ahead, including my sit down with Anna plan. How is the company positioning itself in a work from home world? Then I'm talking the tale of expectations and comparing Tesla to the aforementioned Nike. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lighting Round. So stay with Kramer. After another brutal day for the cloud stocks, I'm going to highlight one that's held up surprisingly well. It's called Anaplan, which is a -a software-as-a-service platform that helps businesses with forecasting and financial planning. Compared to the rest of the NASDAQ, it barely got dinged today. Why? Because Anaplan is one of the less obvious pandemic plays. Their software helps businesses do financial planning and analysis, uh, where you make a forecast, then revisit it again and again and again as you get more data, which is something having run a company, I can tell you is the holy grail of trying to figure out how you're doing. So how does that relate to the COVID-19 economy we found out when anaplan reported a true blowout quarter last month phenomenal guidance for both the next quarter and the full year this is a ridiculously uncertain environment so when the financial planning guys try to make forecasts well they need all the help they can get no wonder the stock roared in response don't take it from me though let's check in with frank Calderoni. he's the bankable chairman ceo of anaplan get a better sense of how his company's managed to thrive in this environment mr Calderoni, welcome back to man money Thank you, Jim. Great to be back. Well, Good Frank, I got I to tell you, um, having run a company and started companies, I was always trying to figure out how to have an accurate forecast rather than just a rosy forecast. How does Anaplan, in a time when we really don't know and most companies are suspending guidance, help the CEOs themselves and the board figure out what's going on in their own company?
3: So, so Jim, I, I think all companies have been through a lot over the last uh, eight months with uh, COVID, and I, th- I think from a planning perspective, it's really proven uh, to organizations the importance of uh, resiliency. You know, there's so much change and how that affects your business is, is extremely important. And being able to respond uh, accordingly is, 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 is equally as important. And what we've seen over the last eight months is that companies are looking for more agility and uh, really kind of looking at how their business is performing and how their business will perform and more reflective of the future rather than the past. And that's where Anaplan kind of comes into play, kind of working with them uh, to really kind of provide that that agility and how they can work on their business and also the alignment, not only from a financial perspective, but aligning finance throughout the operations so they can respond to changes in their supply chain, changes in their their human capital, uh, changes in their sales organization, uh, so they can, again, adapt to the, the environment.
2: Right, well, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about changes in, in the supply chain. Uh, one of you, you say you believe you're the leader in the spirits and cosmetics verticals. Okay, in the spirits business, which I play in, I know that there's been lots of supply, uh, you know, everything from like Mexico not wanting to have the beer to, to a problem with no glass. You have to go to China or Colombia. How can Anaplan take those input inputs and make it so a CEO can make better choices? So, so
3: a good thing, that's a, that's a great example, when you think about spirits, or even from a grocery perspective, um, and how uh, stores are really looking at organizations, looking at planning around their, uh, their stock of, of the right types of groceries. Having more intelligence around what's happening in the environment is critical. And one of the things that Anaplan does, and we just announced an enhancement to this last week called Plan IQ, is we bring uh, more intelligence into the forecasting process. So not only internal information, but information that's coming from your surroundings, uh, your demand, uh, what's going on in the market, what's happening with the, uh, the overall uh, population of, of your consumers. Bringing that into your forecasting allows you to get more accuracy uh, so that you can then predict better about wh- how best you need to respond and then have the right goods in the case of spirits or in the case of groceries, have the right goods available available. Uh, in in what's needed. And I think what we've seen in the last number of months is there's been so much change in both of those examples that companies have had to respond. With our Plan IQ uh, announcement that we had last week, it's a combination of a uh, combined technology with Amazon. We brought the Amazon forecast Mm -hmm. into our product that brings the capability of this external data into your planning. And we've seen, uh, proven with some of the customers that we've worked on early on, a 50% improvement in their ability to accurately forecast the outcome. Therefore, they can have, again, the right type of of product available in the marketplace at the right time.
2: You've got some great partners. We know that you partner with the companies that tell companies how to handle digitization, EY, Accenture, Deloitte. You just mentioned Amazon, but I think this Google partnership has got me very excited because it's here and now
3: yeah well so first uh, google's been a customer of anaplans now since 2016. wow okay and it's, it's a great testament to uh, our planning platform where they're using it in finance they're using it in sales they're using it in supply chain in operations and so they truly have used it across the platform and then more recently what we've done is we've actually taken them as a customer and brought them into the google cloud so that we can have our product our platform reside in the google cloud And that's provided them with much more breadth and scalability. And and that's part of the partnership. So it's really kind of looking at the ability for us to take our software platform, uh, go into a public cloud environment, give give our customers much more choice, uh, scalability, um, as well as intelligence, uh, do things uh, with partnering. Um, You mentioned a couple of our partners Mm -hmm. like Deloitte and Accenture, uh, working with them along with, in this case, uh, Google Cloud, Uh, to be able to give our customers uh, a much more extensive uh, solution.
2: All right. So let's say uh, you're on the board, you're on the audit committee and your CEO comes in and says, listen, we're going to, it's going to be a great year and the the company has Anna plan would this, would one of those board members be much more informed and say now wait a second maybe you should be budgeting the trend or worse this is not good enough that you come in with a rosy forecast we're not buying it we're using we're looking at the Anna plan numbers and they don't make sense
3: I, I mean Jim the, the good thing, what I would say you know with any board or any type of a you know an executive uh, session like that the, the, the key thing about planning which I would bring up is, it, again, it's got to be agile. It's got to be flexible to the environment. And if things change, like in your scenario, if things change, you, you want to be able to pivot. And the beauty about Anaplan, which is different from anything else in the past, is you're allowed to do, you, you're given the, the ability to do various scenarios. And you can do different types of what ifs. And you can do an A scenario, B scenario, C scenario. And know as you continue to progress down that path, you can make some modifications. And again, going back to what I said, bringing more intelligence into it gives you more factors that allow you to get better at your predictions and therefore better at running your business. And then you can pretty much orchestrate the right financial performance. And if you have some challenges in your financial performance, you can then make the corrections and make those corrections soon uh, and be able to kind of move in a different uh, direction to, to solve that.
2: Well, I wish people knew when I'm listening to you that you may not understand, uh, but most companies before Anaplan were really kind of winging it. And winging it doesn't work anymore. So Frank, I think you got a great product here and a a great company. Thank you so much for coming on, Mad Money. Always good Good to see you. you Thank you. That's Frank Calaroni, the CEO of Anaplan. Having served on boards and having been CEO, I wish I had the product. Mad Money's back here for the break. It is time! It's time for the lightning round! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dang! Time for the lightning round! It's over Jake in Michigan. Jake! Hey, Professor, I got a question for you. What are your thoughts on Chewy? Well, I mean, this is one of those very high multiple stocks that we talk about that is going to come down, but at the same time, I like the business very much. Let's use this, uh... Let's just say it's a good company, but if you gotta take, be willing to take some pain if you want to buy it right now. I like if you want pet food. Frankly, I thought the General Mills call was good. Let's go to John in New York. John, Jimbo, yo, I need your help, buddy. I bought some check at eighty-one. It dropped to sixty-three on Monday. It's back up to sixty-nine and change today. I'm thinking of cost averaging it. What do you think? Schools are closing. What do I do? Look, I I think that that spike's doing a great job. The stock came down because it got ahead of itself. Very few people expected the numbers to be that good. I like your plan. But let's stick to 63, okay? Don't jump before him. doesn't get there. It doesn't get there. Ken in Connecticut, Ken.
1: Hey, Jim. Thank you very much for taking my call. Oh, sure, Ken. What's up? Okay, I'm from Connecticut, the land of steady habits, sir. Okay. And thinking that way steadily, a couple of years ago, got a long-term investment as part of an inheritance that includes this uh, this one particular stock. Uh, recently, it raised its dividend. It acquired another company. Uh, it's, its cash and, uh, to debt seems pretty good, So it's uh, it, and it's steady. Uh, Yield is attractive uh, but and seems sustainable because the uh, the debt, I mean, the uh, the right. cash is pretty right. good. Right. Right. So I'm okay. thinking maybe it's, uh, this is a good time to add to that long-term steady position and of MetLife, M-E-T.
2: MetLife. MetLife's fine. I mean, it's really the yield that you've been buying. I don't like any of the financials. None. None. I feel like the oils and the financials are now somehow like each other, which is weird. So I I like the yield, but that's all I can say. Steve in New Jersey, Steve. Uh, Hi, Jim. I'm looking at Liondale Industries. The stock is at $70 a share. Okay, Stephanie and I, Stephanie Link and I disagree about a lot of stuff today on Scott's show, but we do like some of these cyclicals, and this is a cyclical that is doing quite well. Uh, By the way, let's throw in Dow Chemical, why don't we? Dow Chemical is doing quite well. I want to go to Craig in Texas, Craig. Hi, it's Kramer Booyah. Booyah. First time listener and uh, loving your show. Thank you. First time calling. Hey, so Beyond Meat's been up, down, and all around lately. JP Morgan thinks it's overpriced because of the competition, but I think the next two quarters are going to see all-time highs. Am I being too optimistic here? Wait, it's Beyond Meat? Right? Okay, so here's the problem with Beyond Meat. It's ridiculously expensive. Here's what's great about it. It's always going to be expensive. Why? Because it's the future. And I like the future. And I believe in Ethan Brown. Buy some here and buy some lower. I need to go to Jamie in Florida. Jamie.
3: How you doing, Jim? So I've got a long position in a that I've been at over the last couple of months. But September has not been nice to it. taking taken about a 20% pounding. Uh, and today it closed under its 200-day moving average. And I don't know what to do.
2: I have not looked at A10 since it came public because I felt it was just not that frankly important. That doesn't mean if I worked there I wouldn't find it important, but let me look it over again. Uh, I just never felt frankly that it that it was that proprietary. I, I just didn't. Let's go to Christine, Arkansas, please. Christy. Hi,
0: Jim. Hey Christy. Hi, this is so exciting to be on your
2: show.
5: I uh, watch your show every day and have learned so much from you. Excellent. Uh, I've owned this stock for a few months and would like to know your advice to hold or sell.
0: My um, stock
2: is INSG. And so I, I like this company. I would actually, instead of just the hold or sell, I would actually put it in the buy category if you get it below 10. I think it's doing very, very well. Let's go to Charlie in Georgia, please, Charlie. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. Yo, the chill man is struggling. What's going on? I uh, love your show. Real Thank quick, you. My question is on uh, stock ticker symbol MGA Magna
0: International. I White like Gold Magna. Stock.
2: I like I like a lot of the autos. I like the complex. I think it's coming back. You're in the cheapest. It's come down a great deal. Magna is okay for me. And that lays gentlemen, in the inclusion of the Lightning Round.
4: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
2: I've said a lot of times, I mean, on Wall Street, expectations are everything. We don't care where a stock has been. We only care where it's going to. And the best indicator of where it's going? Well, it's whether the company beats expectations or misses them. Just look at what happened in Tesla and Nike yesterday. Tesla disappointed. Okay, we accept that. Now it's getting hammers down more than 10%. Nike beat, as I mentioned earlier. Now it's on fire on a very wet day, up nearly 9%. If you didn't know, yesterday was Tesla's long-awaited much hyped battery day. The fact that we had this on our calendars meant that expectations were heightened, but there was more to it than that. There was a lot of chatter among ostensibly very smart people, some of whom I know, some of whom I talk to regularly, that Elon Musk would unveil a million-mile car battery. Yeah, a million-mile battery you never need to throw away, one that charges itself via a solar panel on the roof of the car and lasts for nine hours so you can go anywhere, probably including Mars, full I know, one day without charging it. The only part that I made up there was the Mars. It sounds incredible. It's almost too good to be true, right? Turns out there was no million-mile battery powered by solar that lasts nine hours per charge. Instead, we got a lot of stuff about how good electric vehicles are. They're so good that Tesla needs a lot more factories to meet the demand. How much demand? Well, Musk talked about making 20 million car batteries per year, therefore 20 million cars, a decade from now. Put that in perspective. The entire American auto industry made 17 million cars last year. Even better. Musk announced that he's got a new Tesla coming in three years that will only cost you $25,000. They can finally go that cheap because, yes, they're bringing down the cost of the battery rapidly. Battery day! If there hadn't been all of this hype about a million-mile battery, those would have been huge positives. And they were with me. But because expectations were so high, Tesla's battery day was viewed as a disappointment. I I think it's rather crazy. There was nothing disappointing about it. Who cares about a million-mile battery when Elon Musk talked about a $25,000 electric car? Something that could be as revolutionary as the Model T. When Henry Ford bought he built $15 million of them. It's the first time regular people could afford a car. And 20 million cars a year in 2030? That's amazing. Toyota, the largest auto company in the world by volume, currently makes about 10 million cars a year worldwide. Yep, Tesla comes out with a plan to build an electric car for the masses, and it's greeted with a yawn because Musk didn't roll out a magic battery. That's what happens when the expectations get out of control. Nobody cares about all these new positives. They're just bummed that the the things that they hyped didn't happen. So, of course, the stock gets crushed. I love the news, even as we won't see the results until a couple of years. Now, I want you to contrast that with Nike. Going into this quarter, there was a perception that Nike would certainly disappoint in the United States and have a so-so quarter in China. Who needs new shoes when you're stuck indoors most of the time because of the pandemic? Apparently, a lot of people, including some people at Nike, judging from the supply constraints. Like I explained before, Nike shot the lights out, thanks in large part to its phenomenal digital business. But the real genius here, at least when it comes to the stock, is that no one was looking for anything special. In fact, some analysts were hedging. You had plenty of skeptics out there. So when Nike beat those humdrum expectations, well, the stock really roared. Now, what do you do with the stock at Nike? Well, we own Nike for the Travel Trust, which you can follow along by joining the Plus.com club. And we have no desire to sell it up here. It's a terrific story. As for Tesla... I've liked it from 66, but the run-up into Battery Day is to be burned off, and at $380, we're not there yet. I, look, don't give up, though. but give it some time, and we'll get to the level where I'll tell you you can pounce again. Stick prepared. Delivering Alpha is back for its 10th year of September 30th. Visit deliveringalpha.com to learn more and register. You know, it's always an amazing day. You don't want to miss it. Yes, discouraging day, but we need to wash people out. I know it sounds terrible. I don't want you to be one of on them. If you haven't taken anything off yet, you can still sell. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise to find it just for you right here on Make Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow.